You're listening to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. My name is Kamala Avila Salmon, and I gotta be real with you. A black square on your Instagram does not make you an anti-racist, but there is a path. Join me as I guide you from becoming aware of racial injustice to actually doing something about it. Whether you're an ally ready to take action or just a Black person looking for someone else to answer all those ally questions, you're in the right place. It's time to go from woke to work. Hey guys, welcome back to From Woke to Work, the anti-racist journey. I'm your host, Kamala Avila Salmon. Now, I can barely believe I'm saying this, but we have reached the last step of our journey together, anti-racism. And not the kind that so many name-checked last spring and summer as they bought Dr. Kendi's book and maybe even read some of it, but probably not. Not the kind that just means that you're not a fan of racism. We're talking about true, effective, committed anti-racism. The kind that actually changes you and how you show up in the world. I want to take a moment here just to thank each and every one of you for listening and riding with us all season long. I know that I pushed you hard, probing on areas where you may have thought you were doing pretty well and then maybe realized you had further to go in the journey than you thought. But you stuck around anyway, and I'm so thankful for it. I'm especially thankful to everyone who not only listened, but told a friend, colleague, or family member to check it out. Those of you that promoted the show on your own Facebook and Instagram feeds and stories and who shared my LinkedIn posts every week, and that includes you, Mom. Thank you. And everybody that left ratings on Apple so more people could journey with us. I can't thank you enough for making this dream of mine come true. It feels like every week I have someone new reaching out to me to say that they heard about the podcast from a friend and started listening. You guys are the best promo squad. And now that we finally made it to anti-racism, it's time to really go in. If you thought that being an impactful ally sounded hard, you're not even remotely ready for anti-racism. And yet, our only hope as a nation to overcome our racist past and present is anti-racism. So what do we do? What we do is get serious and get specific real quick. Now, if you've been listening to this show since the beginning, you know we started with awareness, and you already know what I'm going to say first. Anti-racism is not about feelings. It is not about good intentions. You're not an anti-racist because you have a few moments of effective allyship. You're not an anti-racist because you think racism is bad. That is because anti-racism is not thoughts and prayers work. It is action work. And more importantly, it is action taken consistently on a daily basis. One can act in an anti-racist moment at one specific moment, But what I want to talk about is that anti-racist lifestyle, the development of an ongoing, persistent, and relentless drive to dismantle racism and anti-Blackness in every system that you find it in. And spoiler alert, if you start looking at our systems, you will see that it is in every system that we engage with in American society. And not doing that sometimes, doing it all the time. Now, don't get this confused with perfection. No one's saying that you have to be perfect and never make a mistake. That's literally impossible. In fact, I think that once you truly commit to anti-racism, you will find that you have and will continue to make mistakes when it comes to pushing back on anti-Blackness, for instance. But when it happens, you don't cower in shame or run away or throw up your hands in frustration, declaring, there's no point in trying, it's too hard. 
you will actually see those moments as needed doses of humility and a call to redouble your efforts to see beyond the white supremacy glasses that each of us are handed at birth in this country. So to talk about what anti-racism is and can be, I invited two people whose work in this space I deeply admire. Glenn Singleton has devoted over 30 years to constructing racial equity worldwide and developing leaders to do the same. An author, a thought leader, and a strategist, he is the creator of Courageous Conversation, a protocol and framework for sustained, deepened dialogue about race and beyond diversity, a curriculum that has taught hundreds of thousands of people how to use it. Glenn has consulted with executives at Wyden and Kennedy, Google, Amazon, Procter & Gamble, just to name a few. He received the 2017 Most Valuable Partnership Award at AdColor, and he is also the founder and board chair of the Courageous Conversation Global Foundation, which develops partnerships to promote racial justice, interracial understanding, and human healing worldwide. My second guest today is J-Love Calderon. J-Love is a coach, a creative, and a lifelong anti-racist activist. She has coached organizers and activists, social entrepreneurs and artists, corporations and media companies, all leading her to co-found Inspire Justice, a social impact and creative agency supporting celebrities, influencers and Hollywood in shifting a very toxic culture into a culture where everyone can truly thrive and where new narratives centering justice and equity become normalized. Storytelling is J-Love's creative tool to center and impact justice and change with a litany of short films, TV shows, and books to her name. Jay Love and Glenn, thank you so much for coming to visit us today on From Woke to Work. How are you? Awesome. Good morning. So beautiful to be here. I am pumped. This is a big episode for us. We've been working towards this for a while. And for those of you who have been with me from the beginning, you know that I like to get right into the point and start with the hard stuff first. So when I say that anti-racism, is not a feeling or a moment of action. It is a lifestyle. What does that mean to each of you? Glenn, do you want to start? Absolutely. Again, just thanks for having me here. Thanks for introducing me to J-Love. When I think of lifestyle, I think of that sort of perennial change of the year, New Year's resolution kind of thing where you've just loaded it down for the holidays. You've lounged around, you've watched great TV, you've you know done all kinds of indulgences that are beautiful for adults, right? And then I sort of start to dissect what, how do I get this back together so that I can put my life together and, and be effective and feel good about myself and be progressing. And, you know, the, the first thing is I, I get back to the gym and my trainer tells me, you know, it's not just about working out. It's about your diet. It's about your uh, sleeping. It's about the amount of hydration. It's complicated in that way. Right. And we just want to pick that one moment where Physically, it looks like to the world that we're doing the right thing. So it's kind of performative. But, you know, anti-racism is this full-blown. It's got to permeate all of those things. And right. So are you not only fixing your mind and your body and your spirit and your soul, but are you doing the things that really significantly challenge white supremacy? And this is a, a woke group, right? So this language is not abrupt or challenging. The, the truth of the matter is that we've got to be not non-racist, you know, where we're not the one perpetuating it, the one called out. We've got to be anti-racist, which means we're the ones that are recognized as causing the turbulence. 
and feeling the resistance and, and being canceled and removed and finding ourselves in audiences of other people who are having that same experience. And that's where our joy is. I love that. To be the disruptor is such a powerful thought here. J-Love? Yeah, beautiful. I'm so in this. So good to be here with both of you. For me, lifestyle, it is intentional. It is deliberate. And for me, most importantly, especially for white folks like myself, is consistency. So being a practicing accomplice, as I call it, is about a way of being that guides every single decision you make in life. It guides every single behavior and every single action that you take on a daily basis. And this may feel like a lot, but that's because it is, because white supremacy is a lot. So it's whole life living. And that means the relationships you are in that you choose to be in. That means the products that you choose to support or not support. That means the projects you choose to engage in or not engage in. How does your calendar and your bank account line up with your values of being an anti-racist? So that's, it's like a everyday practice. It's the consistent practice of every day that I draw breath, how do I disrupt and disinvest from the concept and actuality of white supremacy and white supremacy behavior as a white person? I love that. I, I mean, I think you both said the words white supremacy in your answers. And I just want to call that out to people because I think for a lot of people, that is a very scary word. We use it a lot on this podcast because I believe in being specific about what we're talking about. But I think that it's really important to remember that as someone who aspires and aims to be an anti-racist, you have to have white supremacy in your sights all the time and recognize that it is a part of every space that you're in, almost certainly. And I loved what J-Love said about lining up your values with your calendar and your bank account and your relationships. We had an episode on relationships, and I thought that was one of the best episodes we've had just because it really gets into the hard places, the personal places. If you declare yourself to be an anti-racist, but you have an entirely white circle, there's something that's not adding up there you're not really living your values in a way that that is powerful and would be recognizable to people. And I just love, again, what Glenn said about it's not about trying to keep the peace. It's actually about trying to actively disrupt the peace because the peace is white supremacy. There is a great Martin Luther King quote where he says, those who crave a negative peace, which is the absence of violence and turbulence, as opposed to those who crave a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, and I think that's going to be loud and messy work. So I agree with so much of what you guys said. I think this past spring and summer, when the whole world seemed to be waking up to racism for what seemed like the first time, I found myself so inundated with non-Black people and especially white people who were telling me that all of a sudden they are anti-racist now. And I felt so frustrated because for most of them, they hadn't even read even Dr. Kendi's book on the topic not to mention really putting anti-racism into practice. It had just suddenly become the thing to say, the way to say that you don't think that what happened to George Floyd is okay. It almost seemed to replace allyship in the conversation, where I feel like anti-racism is a level up from allyship. It is not the new allyship. And so I put this journey together in part to illustrate that knowing about racial justice is not the same as automatically being anti-racist. And so I would love to hear from you guys what separates people, in your opinion, who talk about anti-racism from people who are really trying to live that life. 
And what does doing the work look like when you're really trying to actively be an anti-racist? J-Love, do you want to start? So I think the first thing for white folks specifically is unlearn and learn because we're still, we still have so many blind spots and we've been socialized to be embracing of white supremacist behavior and thought. And so we have to unlearn how we've been socialized to be white supremacists and then relearn about the truth of race, of systemic racism, of white privilege, of everything that we embody. So we have to unlearn and learn and who we unlearn and learn from matters. And that means that we need to really be listening and centering the voices of Black folks and Brown folks in this work and making sure that we are not in a vacuum, even of other white anti-racist activists. We have to be in deep community with the people that are most affected by white supremacy and have the answers to white supremacy. But unlearning and learning cannot be all. (laughs) It can't stop there. And that's where I think a lot of well-intentioned white people can feel like, okay, I, I did my work. I read the books. Check. I listened to the podcast. Check. I watched this. Check. And, and that's where we can get into some problems. We need to couple that with action. And action means putting your body on the line for racial justice. That means interrupting white people who are practicing white supremacy. That means interrupting ourselves who are practicing it or thinking of of it. That means that we are in the conversation, invitation, and the calling in of other white folks in moving the agenda forward of dismantling white supremacy. And finally, it's around centering Black folks and BIPOC voices always uplifting and amplifying always, and recognizing the transformational and healing work that we as white folks need to do. And to me, that is like when I say we got to do the work, that includes the self-work. That includes how white supremacy has impacted us and the soul work that it takes to move through the pain of recognizing that you are part of the oppressor that your history is part of a group of people that oppressed and continue to oppress, and that 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 does inflict pain upon the awakening of that. So how are we doing our transformational and healing work so that we can show up whole, healthy, and working to get free as we work for freedom? Because we have a stake in this as well, and white folks need to get clear on on that and, and do that personal work. So for me, when when I talk about white folks got to do their work, including myself, these are some of the things that I feel like are really, really important. I love that. Glenn, I'd love to get your take on this because, you know, you've been teaching anti-racist, you know, practice for such a long time and doing it in the context of business and working with leaders. So I'm really curious sort of what you see as some of the distinctions that tell you sort of here's someone that's looking to go beyond the idea of anti-racism into sort of the practice of it. Absolutely. I really resonate with JLo's description of whole and healthy. It really is, for me, thinking about anti-racism as a continuum. The continuum begins with the daily relinquishing of ignorance, because essentially racism is ignorance, right? So, so you've got to become conscious, and you've got to build a, a practice, much like meditation, where it's a daily heightening of one's consciousness. So so that's the foundation of anti-racism. There was a, a, an amazing author that I used to use in, in my teaching when I was uh, still teaching at, at San Jose State, where the Beverly Tatum describes this moving walkway. 
right? And and so when you get on a moving walkway, like in the airport, if you'll remember those days when we did that, you know, you get on and you kind of can just stand there and you stand there and you have this slow process that takes you to the gate or wherever your destination is. And that slow process in, in the Western world, particularly in the United States, is a process that takes us deeper into white supremacy. And you have to do absolutely nothing but stand there to get there, right? And now I embellish this metaphor a little bit because Beverly Tatum was so influential. I mean, if they teach my book and critical race theory, I get to this book, right? Why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? I love that book so, so much, Glenn. Right? And, and so I pose to my students that some people get on that walkway like we saw in the insurrection here in Washington, D.C., and they don't wait. They're running down that walkway. They get to that destination much faster, deeper into racism. But anti-racism feels like you actually turn around on the walkway, okay? And you start walking backwards and bumping into people. And the people who are closest to you are the people who got on the walkway with you, generally your friends, your family, you know, all the kinds of people that you hang out with in a light way. And you're bumping into them and they're asking, what are you doing? And you have to defend getting off of that walkway headed into racism, right? Into white supremacy. So that's the first group that you disrupt. And you build a new persona and a new way with them. And some of them start to ignore you. And some of them, like, I didn't know you cared about those things and all of that, right? So you build those new relationships. Then you get into the strangers who are looking at you like you're crazy because it is so easy to continue progressing into racism, right? And so it's this active. And coming along with you are some allies, but you're still up in front. Allies require that you do it first, and then they'll do it with you. Whereas Jay Love said, I love the accomplice idea. And Dr. Kayla's story talks about that as well, where you have to actually be doing your own work, have your own agenda. And then the accomplices get together and heal together and share stories and strategies and so forth and lick our wounds and cry together. And then we get out there and we do it again. And so it's got to be bold. It's got to be your own. It's got to be continuous, all of that. And this, by the way, we talk a lot about, about how white people need to really take on practices of anti-racism. And clearly, you know, the, the lion's share of the heavy lifting needs to be by white people because they're holding the positions of power and authority right now, okay? The influence, they're the teachers, they're the doctors, they're the CEOs, right? So things aren't going to change unless that. But I'm talking to people of color. I'm talking to my brothers and sisters who are as dark as I am, who, who need to recognize that John Lewis got beat on the bridge, you know, and, and this is anti-racism. And so if, if we're living a life of pleasantries and, and if we've got all the creature comforts because we've got the degrees and, you know, we've got some, some income now, and we've got some property and we bought into that dream a bit, then we need to look at where anti-racism is playing out in our experience as well. Because if we don't do that, it doesn't get better for the generation coming up. I just don't even know what to say about what you just said, because I feel a lot of things. I feel 
so, so grateful to have both of your voices here. I think that I've also used the moving walkway metaphor that Dr. Beverly Tatum uses because I find it so effective. And, you know, I never thought about the piece of it where, you know, if you were to actually do that on a walkway, you would start bumping into people. People would be looking at you like you're crazy and you would have to keep going anyway. The piece that I've always latched onto is that even if you turn around on a walkway, if it's still moving you to the destination, you're still going there. You're just not looking. That's how I would describe colorblind people. This is colorblind philosophy. If I just don't look at the fact that the world is racist, then maybe it is not. It's like you're still going there. You just don't know where you're going, right? If you even start walking in the opposite direction at the same pace as the walkway, you're not actually moving us closer to an anti-racist society. You're just standing still right? You are not going there, but everybody else is. You have to not only run in the other direction faster than the walkway is moving towards that, but you have to bring some people with you or else, you know, how is it going to work? So I, I just think that is so, so awesome. And I, I just want people to really visualize that walkway because I think it's such a great and accessible way to think about it. And I want to make sure that everyone doesn't feel like the three of us are living on some sort of island of perfect anti-racism where we don't make mistakes. We don't have any more growing to do. This is about what you guys need to do. That is so not the case. I've shared on this podcast many times that I frequently discover hidden places of complicity in racism and complicity in anti-Blackness, even in my own life when I realize I need to check myself as well. So I'm wondering if you guys can just vulnerably maybe share how in your own life, what are some experiences or mistakes that you've made when it comes to pushing back on racism and being anti-racist that you needed to sort of level up on and get better at? J-Love, do you want to start? You know, I think for me, it was letting go of ego and letting go of the need to be right because as an educator and activist, like there was some positionality that I had, especially facilitating spaces for white people, specifically in the anti-racist work. And I wanted to be right. I wanted to be a different type of white person. And what that ended up being is that I did a lot of calling out. And I did a lot of I wouldn't go so far as to say shaming, but right on the tip of almost shaming other white people in a workshop setting that was just not helpful, not generous, and not kind. And most importantly, it wasn't effective. And my husband always uses the quote, do you want to be effective or do you want to be right? (laughs) I had to let go of my rightness as a white woman and recognize that calling out other white people for engaging in white supremacist behavior was not helpful. And I had to check myself because I was feeling some type of way being at the front of the room, quite honestly. And and I was feeling myself because I got the knowledge. I got the memo. I did the reading. And so I think for me, the lesson was, you're not better than any other white person. You're not more woke than other white people. You know, you are in a different journey and everybody's on a journey. And so I was able to, through support and through calling, people calling me in and feedback, I was able to like release ego and do my personal work, like we talked about earlier, and then begin the process of calling in white people with loving kindness and accountability, fierce accountability. And that really shaped kind of my journey of my development of as a practicing accomplice. So that was that was a big moment for me, calling in versus calling out. I love that distinction. I think a few people probably have heard it and they maybe think that, oh, you're just changing the last word. It's the same thing, but it's really not. And I think that 
calling in is when you're vulnerable with the person that you're talking to. You're talking about your own struggles, your own places of learning and growing and really wanting to be empathetic with them as they are on their journey, as opposed to saying, look at you and what you're doing. So I think that that's so, so good. Glenn, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned in your prior answer that this message is not just for white people. And I really believe that to my core. First of all, you know, there's anti-Blackness in many, many communities beyond just the white community. You know, we see it in Black communities, in Asian communities, in Latinx communities. And, and so we know that it is there. But I'm just curious if you can share, like, what are some of the maybe mistakes or learnings that you've had even as a Black man trying to do anti-racist work? I, I mean, I imagine this day where J-Love and, and others in the anti-racism movement who are white and really focused on white people bring about a profound change. And Black people specifically, because this is my personal experience in it, will not be calibrated for this new world. Okay, And our skills are so focused on fighting the racism that we experience that what happens when we meet the J-Love, right, who is doing her work? We have to greet her differently. And, and that's the only way that that's going to propel her work, our work, and move the society forward. And so a big part of why I'm here is because I had this privilege and this opportunity to sit at the feet of my elders, many whom are ancestors now. And they instilled a kind of wisdom and a kind of understanding, a kind of compassion, a kind of fortitude and hope. And it just so quickly seems to happen that I'm now the elder. I'll be 57 in two weeks. And I think about the lessons that I began learning from the 40-year-olds in my family and in the community. And I thought they were like ancient, you know, and, and now I'm, I'm 57. And so just talking with your, your producer, Kamala, when I came on and I'm feeling that responsibility to hear him, to see him, to acknowledge what it is it, that is his story and to figure out how it is that I transfer this information effectively so that it doesn't paralyze, it doesn't you know, distance, but that next generation coming up actually embraces this experience that I've had as a tool, right? And couples it with the tools that they have. And, and so I'm not as effective as I want to be in that intergenerational space. And I really want to spend more time making a deeper assessment of what's making me less effective and how I will become more effective, more useful. For me, th that is also just the mistake that I've made of too often uh, relishing in being the smartest person in the room, the most active person in the room. And so the search to find people who can actually elevate, push me, put me in my discomfort, you know, challenge me, that is so necessary. And as you grow older, you become less willing to have that circumstance, right? And, and so these are where my mistakes are made when I'm too comfortable, when, you know, when I'm in that space and when I'm not doing that effective intergenerational engagement, communication, and, and conversation. 
That's so good. I I love that. I think that you're right that I think, and it's not just you, I do feel like there's so much opportunity when it comes to intergenerational discussions and teaching and learning in both directions within the Black community. So often, you know, as a person who I believe can still identify as younger, but don't card me. So often I feel like I see and hear people who are older than me in the Black community sort of saying, you guys aren't doing what we were doing. You guys aren't doing it this way. You guys have it easier. You guys, you guys, you guys, right? Which is so disempowering in a certain way. And then at the same time, I also see people who are my generation and younger. So taking for granted all of the work that has been done by their parents, their grandparents to get them to a place of being able to now be upset about the diversity practices at their company, where their parents and their grandparents are like, we fought just to be there. We were not talking about hiring enough of us. We were talking about hiring any of us. And and how do we keep that learning in both directions? I just think it's so important. Glenn, I want to dig in a little bit to Courageous Conversation. So many people listening may not be already familiar with it. And I just think it's such a powerful program that you've built. So you have been talking to people and companies about race and racism in a very productive way since way before it was cool and making people have these conversations. So I'd love to hear from you what the last year has been like as so many people suddenly were like, oh my gosh, time to get serious about racism. Who can I bring into my company? I'm sure you got a lot of those phone calls. And I'm just curious how the last year for your company has been different. Has anything really changed? Are people bringing you in with a different level of commitment or does it feel like sound and fury and maybe no sort of substance? It's absolutely all of the above. In 1990-whatever, when I wrote Courageous Conversation, it was to recognize that there was a lot of people at the time, believe it or not, who knew that we needed to have a conversation because these disparities were showing. And most of my work, as you know, was in education at that point. So the what was called the racial achievement gap was present, but people didn't have tools to really talk about it. And so by not being able to talk about it, you were blamed as racist. And it was just a shortcut end. And so I wrote the protocol, which is Courageous Conversation, to give people a way into the conversation and a way to to enhance and deepen that conversation so that we got to results. Flash forward to pandemic and George Floyd right on top of each other, we got pretty much shut down in March because all of our work was face-to-face all over the globe. Okay. And so we were really doing, you know, amazing work that you cited up in the front, you know, we're in the back in the advertising industry where I started my work, really believing that the messaging going out is really influential to building up and growing up a new society. And we got shut down. So we had to pivot and figure out how to take it online like everybody else. But we had something. We we knew what it looked like, felt like. So we just had to change the platform. And I I say just like it was painstaking and it was a struggle. And now we can't imagine not being in the virtual space, right? But there were all kinds of people who rushed in and and not only companies that needed a performative kind of answer to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, et cetera, et cetera. But there were also practitioners 
who rushed into becoming, you know, these diversity trainers, these race people. And so that made it even more complicated because it wasn't just companies that were insincere, that just wanted to message to the world, but it was also choosing people in sincere companies that didn't really know how to handle the delicacy of now. And so some companies were being set back, even though, you know, they were really focused, right, and and deep-seated in their understanding. This conversation today seems like, you know, is one of the four pillars of the new administration, racial equity. You couldn't say racial equity in 1996. And so now I'm thinking about what 10 years from now looks like. And, and how is it that we take people who really recognize that we need to do this work now, leaders, particularly in organizations, be they schools, hospitals, you know, Fortune 500, you know, whatever in our families. How do we sustain this? How do we create this in a way that it's not a workshop, it's not an exercise, it's not the du jour? But what we talked about right at the beginning, this is the lifestyle. This is the corporate culture. This is what we're all about for real. That's what we're doing right now. And it is starting with the conversation and skills still, but it's more quickly translating into how do I apply this conversation into the real equity transformation plan that we've written for the organization that has hard-hitting policy change, programming change personnel change. You know, those are the things that will matter ultimately. So good. I I think so many companies hope that they can transform into an anti-racist organization, but keep all the same people that they have now. And I'm just like, well, how's that going to play out? We will see, right? So J-Love, I think when we met through a dear friend of mine, one of the things that struck me immediately and stood out was how soon you were like, I'm a white woman. And now I think you did that just because by looking at you and your last name, I might not have known, but it stood out to me because it was at a time when there were a lot of high profile instances of people, especially in academia, who were being quote unquote outed for having posed as a person of color in their work in order to gain credibility in conversations about race. And so I remember thinking that the fact that you called that out showed to me that you were someone who was about the real work just by how direct you were. And also, I think one of the things that I've noticed is that generally white people are more apt to state whiteness last as a part of their identity if they name it at all. That is so not a part of who they say and believe they are. And I think that it really does make you stand out. So I would love for our audience to hear a little bit about your journey, how you reached this place of being so direct and committed and upfront with the work that you're doing as a white person to dismantle anti-racism and especially sort of how that translates in the entertainment industry. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Oh, and one thing, I I heard this quote just for the last thing we were talking about. If you're the smartest person at the table, you're at the wrong table. I love that. I've always loved that. And I do think it's an ego check, right? Like, wait, what? Okay, so anyway, I had to say that. Yeah, for me, it's very, very real because early in my journey, I'm from Denver, Colorado. And I moved to San Diego when I was 18 and then to New York when I was, I think, 22. And in New York, there's a lot of folks that are Puerto Rican, Dominican, like Latinx folks that and some are white presenting. And hip hop culture gave me my name, Jay Love. And then I married a Dominican man. So I got my last name. And what happened, y'all, is 
I co-founded an entire organization dedicated to young black girls in Brooklyn with other women of color. And it wasn't until a year into this founding of the organization at a retreat when we had to do some deep work, like what you're doing now, Glenn, that deep work in terms of your retreat, that people found out I was white and they didn't know. And I didn't know they didn't know. They assumed I was a light-skinned Puerto Rican. So it was devastating. It showed my ignorance and definitely me coming from Denver, like just like it it just, it tells the story, right? Of like where I was and here I was thought I was doing the work. I'll never forget that in my early development. And so from that day forth, I was committed to sharing my identity and people think I'm weird AF, like weird, especially when I introduce myself in the entertainment industry. (laughs) But you know what? It's, it is my politic. It is my politic, and that it goes back to what we're talking about with lifestyle. How am I able to practice being an accomplice is that my politic comes first, no matter what. And that includes maybe not getting what I ha- had hoped I would get in terms of a project, a deal, this, this or that, the business or whatever. But it, it means that for me personally, I know that my integrity is coming first. So for me, the directness is necessary because language does create our reality. And the more that we can, you know, like a problem name's a problem solved. If people can't even say the word white supremacy, y'all, we got a problem. If we can't name it, we cannot solve it. If we can't see it, we cannot deal with it. So let's just get it all up front. I'm a white woman. I identify as middle class now. I have educational privilege. Okay, now let's, you know, who, who are other people in the room and let's talk and see what we can make together. So it does turn some people off and that is the way it is. It is my duty, it's my politic, it's my obligation as a white woman to, to do that and to be direct. So I think in, in the spaces that I'm in, what I have to do is, as we mentioned before, I have to consistently do my work and be in deep practice. And that includes honing and evolving my politic. That includes being in deep community with black and brown folks and paying attention, like really listening and pivoting when I need to pivot. And what I mean by that is like, if I put a lot of time and energy and thought into something and it's moving and moving, I'm feeling really good about it. If I get feedback that there is something about it that is not right, that is not in the forefront of racial equity, that is somehow not doing what it needs to do, then I need to not just take notice, but then I need to change. I need to let go of that. I need to detach from ego and attachment and be like, okay, this is not going to work this way. Let me reconfigure. Let me rethink. And to see that as a contribution, not as a punishment, to see that as a contribution, not as a sacrifice, to see that as a contribution toward evolving up to leveling up and to be, to be grateful for that. Staying bold and courageous. I just love everything about what you said. And I think your framing around seeing it as a contribution, not a sacrifice, is 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 so well said. So, you know, I, I think by this point we hopefully have a lot of listeners who are leaning in, feeling both inspired and maybe also intimidated by this idea of the anti-racist lifestyle. And to me, this is a good thing. Because like allyship, anti-racism is not supposed to be comfortable all the time. It shouldn't be easy. It should make you uncomfortable because everything in our society is structured to reinforce racism. And that is the the path of least resistance. And anti-racism is the one that you need to work at. As we said earlier, you don't have to be paying attention to act in ways that perpetuate racism. You do have to pay attention to thwart racism. 
to see it in all the places that it exists to question and challenge it. So I would love for each of you to just share maybe one way someone who wants to step up their commitment and move from allyship to anti-racism can get started. Is there a situation where you might say, okay, an ally would do this, but an anti-racist might do that instead? Just anything that we can do to make it a little bit more concrete quickly. Glenn? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you, you have to identify the circumstances that you know are problematic. And you have to commit to being a force in transforming those circumstances. And so don't bite off more than you can chew, as my grandmom used to tell me, right? Because that's not helpful. You're just going to choke. It's not nourishing. And you're going to have this phobia about biting off anything in the future. And so you got to graduate yourself into it, but you got to be doing something. This is not a competition either. Whiteness comes in and it creates this sort of competitiveness about anti-racism. And particularly, I see this among my white friends that really can't learn from other white people around this because they're so competitive about it. Whereas you're not norm referencing to someone else. You are referencing to those circumstances in your life that need to be transformed. And, and so at the beginning of the week, like you set your schedule for anything else, you set your schedule to challenge racism. And at the end of the week, you assess your progress. And if you didn't do as well, you need a new plan. You need a new direction. You need to figure out how to get back in there and be effective. And this is yours, right? This is in your diary, in your iPhone or whatever it is, right? And you check that off and you will feel that transformation internally, personally. You will feel, you know, just more alive and connected to humanity. You will feel yourself evolving and no one will be able to tell you that you're not. Ah, so good. So good. Come on, Preet. Hey, love. Yes, yes. White folks, this is for you in a non-competitive way for actions every week, an action for your body, an action for your mind, an action for your money, and an action for your calendar toward the liberation of, of Black people, period. Every single week, do it. Say it one more time. Give us the four one more time for those who couldn't write fast enough. Yes, body, mind, money, and calendar. Amen. Amen. I, I, I love it. Simplicity is, is key. So I think almost everyone listening to this podcast probably has a job or some workplace that they exist in Monday to Friday. And if I had to guess, many are working at companies that don't look like the racially diverse world that we actually live in and don't look like the world that they claim they want to live in. Many are working at companies who shared Black Lives Matter solidarity statements this summer, but have no or very few Black people in leadership there. So I want to talk about what being an anti-racism at work can look like. One situation that popped into my head is that if you're sitting in a meeting and something is said that is deeply problematic, an ally might pull the person of color aside after the meeting and say, I'm so sorry that that happened. I'm planning on speaking to them. But an anti-racist might speak up in the meeting and say, why are we doing this? Why are we saying this? Especially a white anti-racist who has a ton of equity in the company. To me, that would be a difference. So I would love for you guys to talk about what being anti-racist at work can look like and how people can break with white solidarity and anti-blackness in the workplace. Glenn? 
I, I love this question. And I use the reference when I first started working in, in the field and working with educators and particularly teachers and this circumstance of, you know, more than 80% of the teachers of children of color are white. And, and so the, the hardest part for uh, teacher development is to recognize that it's not your work practice first, it's your home practice. You don't miraculously show up at work ready to be anti-racist. You've got to be practicing before you get to work so that when you cross the threshold, you are still you. You modify because it's a, a professional circumstance and you don't have the same kinds of kindred spirits and connections and relationships. However, if you are anti-racist really outside of work, you can't not be anti-racist inside work. And so the first stage of it is simply to interrupt. So as the flow is going on, just differentiate yourself by saying whatever is being talked about here, I don't agree with. You don't have to offer the solution. You don't have to offer the new topic, the new direction, how we do it, okay, or should be doing it. You simply have to say, it's not working for me right now, okay? And people need to lean in to understand that. And that's what I think is missing so often. People don't do anything at work because they don't think they know what to do in terms of the solution, the finality, the end result. No one has asked us to solve for racism. People have asked that we address it, we challenge it, we dismantle it. But trying to figure out the end of racism is way too far down the road. Trying to figure out how we deinstitutionalize racism in this policy, in this practice, in this way of diversifying, that's right here before us. I love that so much. Jay Love? So dope. I love it. Yes, I think for white folks, disrupting the narrative in real time is number one and is something that you can do right now without even reading another book listening to another podcast, you can disrupt racist narratives in real time in every conversation, every meeting, in everything that is happening. You can do that and you must do that. And then beyond that, I think of practice, policy, and practice again. We got to get to the heart of people to recognize that we all have the same stake, meaning that this matters to all of us, that getting free is important for all of us, for our humanity to evolve and move to the next place while absolutely negatively impacting Black people and BIPOC people and centering that first. But understanding our mutual stake goes to the heart of the matter. Then that goes to like, well, how are we practicing racial justice and equity, aka power in the workplace, which goes to policy, but we enact policy and don't practice the policy. So we have to go back to practice policy practice to ensure that integration is happening, that we are actually having our heart and our values live in the center, that our policies reflect that in the workplace, and that our policies are indeed our practice. And I think that's some of the way that people can do it. And also white folks, you need to pay attention to reparations. You need to be giving reparations yourself. And you need to be ensuring that your company has on the table reparations as a conversation piece and moving that toward realization to continue the healing process and the reconciliation of the incredibly damaging historic way that white people have behaved in this country and in the world. It's just, it's so important. 
So powerful. I mean, I think, Glenn, one thing that you said that really stands out to me is that you can't be anti-racist at work if you're not anti-racist outside of work. It's not going to magically appear when you're in the workplace, which is so important. This is the lifestyle piece. And what you said, J-Love, about one way that I would sort of like make this idea of reparations really clear is that even today in 2021, Black people are being invited to speak at organizations about race and racism for free. That cannot be your company's approach to trying to bring people along. Black people and brown people are being asked to take on anti-racist work in alongside their day job and not being compensated for it. That is an additional form of oppression. And I think, you know, as a white person in the workplace, when you see that, you can call that out very, very plainly. So I don't think that we can say much more, much better than what we just did. You guys nailed it. Anti-racism is not a feeling. It's a daily commitment to seeking to dismantle racism everywhere you find it, and especially when you find it in yourself. So Glenn and J-Love, I just want to thank you again for creating such an amazing space of empowerment and honesty on a topic that is so needed. You dropped so much knowledge on me personally, and I feel like I learned so much. So I hope that our listeners feel the same. Before you go, can you tell everyone how they can follow you and your work and keep up with what you're doing, Glenn? Yeah, well, I'm out there as much as an old guy is. You know, I'm on Instagram at CourageousDove444, and I'm on Twitter at CourageousDove also. And LinkedIn, I'm, I'm constantly putting information and insights there because uh, I do believe that this is not only a social media platform for socializing, but this is truly about our productivity and our work. And so making sure that that platform is there. And uh, if you don't find me there, then just check out my mom. She is the Facebook person. Uh, so that's Janet L. Perkins. Uh, so you can always get to know what's going on in life uh, by searching her out and just seeing what's going on. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. J-Love, how can people follow you in your work? Yes, at J Love Calderon across all social media, at We Inspire Justice and at Showing Up for Racial Justice. Amazing. So thank you guys again so much. We did it. We made it all the way to anti-racism. Now it only took us 12 weeks to get here, but in real life, this journey from awareness to sympathy, empathy, reflection, allyship, and finally anti-racism might take you twice as long. It might take you three times as long. In fact, you will never actually arrive. This is a life's worth of work, constantly learning new things, finding new blind spots, and going through all of the steps of this journey again, and rediscovering places that you were not aware, that you need to become aware, and begin again. Sympathy, empathy, reflection, allyship, anti-racism. And so I just want you guys to know that you're doing it right if you feel like, oh, I keep getting set back but this process is worth it. And the goal is really to ensure that our kids, that my child doesn't need to record this podcast again when he is 30 something begging for honest conversation and change and begging his peers to reflect on where we are as a society. We can do this, we have to do this. So I encourage you one more time, wherever you are, reflect on where you are in your journey right now and commit to a concrete way to take one more step deeper into the funnel in the direction of anti-racism and away as quickly as possible from the white supremacist destination that we're all being pulled along towards. 
And yes, share this podcast and your progress with those in your life so that they can journey with you and you can be a part of a community that is trying to do this work together. Nothing good can succeed in isolation. I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon, and this has been From Woke to Work. Thanks for joining us and for making it this far. As always, I'm Kamala Avila-Salmon, and you can follow me on social media at TheRealKS1. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts, and don't forget to rate us to help more people find the show. From Woke to Work was produced by me, Kamala Avila-Salmon, in partnership with Julian Lewis and TJ Bonaventura at StudioPod. Edits were made by Noda Lab. Our amazing artwork was designed by Tommy Gomez. And this fire track I'm speaking on was produced by Dave Contrap. Until next time, 